This afternoon, we are once more privileged to have a friend and a visitor amongst us, Pastor Mark Hartfield from uh, Grace Informed Baptist Church Taylor's, this Baptist Church Taylor, sorry, in uh, Greenville, South Carolina. And uh, we thank the Lord for you, dear brother. Pastor Hartfield would be uh, not a visitor on this pulpit. He's preached here. I think this would be uh, a third time he's preaching in our gathered worship. And we thank the Lord for your church having sent you over. He's married to Cheryl, uh, and the Cheryl and the brethren back at home have graciously uh, sent him to us. And we are grateful for your ministry in the TPC and uh, amongst us in various ways. So please come, dear brother, and preach to us God's word. We thank God for you. You're welcome. Thank you, brother. Good afternoon. It's so good to be here. I, uh, as Pastor Eric said, it is it's my third trip and just always such a joy. You feel like family uh, to, to me now. I'm, I'm getting more confident with your names and faces and just rejoicing to see God at work in you and see your fruitfulness. I, I do want to give a warm hello from Cheryl. Some of you have asked about her and um, when Kent so graciously agreed to come and I had a traveling buddy, then, then Cheryl was able to stay back. And I'm, I'm very grateful that Kent has come. And thank you to your pastors, Marungi and Eric and Dominic, and really rejoice the Lord's added Kevin and uh, Paul to your midst. And then I understand that there was the vote yesterday um, for Paul with the, the, the work in re, okay, the re, our town, how about that? That's great. So thank you so much for your warm reception. Um, it's really good to be here. Would you turn with me to Paul's letter to the church at Philippi? And I'd like to read for us verses 12 through 16. I think it's John MacArthur that entitled this book, Epistle of Joy. And you might find some 14 times either the word joy or rejoice in this letter. Some have also thought of it as an inspired thank you letter as Paul is giving thanks for how the church at Philippi, at, at a most important hour, provided what he needed. So let me read these five verses for us, and then let's go once again to the throne of grace for, for help. Not that I've already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers or brothers and sisters, I do not consider that I have made it my own. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. 
Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. We read in Isaiah 40, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. This is his word. Let's go to him one more time. Well, Heavenly Father, you who from eternity elected a people for yourself, from all the tribes and languages and peoples and nations, to whom your Son agreed in covenant that he would give his life for those, and the Spirit who applies all those wonderful benefits of redemption. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we give you thanks for this hour. We thank you for your word. We thank you that you have revealed yourself to us in this book. This redemptive revelation. We thank you for this letter of Paul to the church there at Philippi. We're grateful. And we pray that as we think about the one and only thing this afternoon, that you would be with us. We pray for your spirit self to apply the word that we might be confronted with our need to imitate Paul, this one who invited others to imitate him as he imitated our Lord Jesus. So here as we look to you, we give you thanks for this day and for your great mercy. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Well, three and a half years ago, I preached this very text on our final Lord's Day in Beijing, China. We had been there six years, really wonderful six years of life and ministry there in the capital. I tell people I fell in love, I love, I fell in love again, really, with the gospel and with my wife, with whom I've been married 37 years. Um, but that was June 30th, 2019. And two days later, we would return to the United States. And that morning, I began my message with this introduction, which I have to confess to you is more meaningful as I was not aware of the Mukethis friend that apparently died yesterday. I was not aware of this. which gives a bit more meaning to my introduction that day in Beijing. I said, today is significant as today may be the last day that Cheryl and I may see some of you and you see us in this Christian pilgrimage on this side of heaven. And so I said, so I want to speak to speak with you about an important topic, the one and only thing. And today, no doubt you're aware that two weeks ago, we turned the page from 2022 to 2023. We're almost a quarter way through this century. And so this is a, in a sense, a one-off New Year's message 
just like the one I preached, I believe, last year from Psalm 27, 4, where David said, One thing have I asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. So this is a message this afternoon that I'm intending to help us reset our hearts and minds that we too might be the people of one thing. You know, life has so many one things. I want you to think about this for a moment. Maybe so many one and only things that you just can't forget. I think I illustrated it similarly a year ago. You forget or neglect these things at your own risk. And I could give you a list. You think about your keys, your cell phone, your charger, your passport, a password, something, that the necessity to recharge your phone, your electricity or gas. I always find that my gas tank is lowest when I'm running late for something. I never really need to refill except when I'm running late. Maybe you've had that experience. Or you know that today is your father or mother's birthday and you're trying to think, I need to remember to call them, reach out and have that talk. Or even if you're married, your anniversary. Or a particular ingredient for a dish you're trying to make and you you were kind of casual and checking and then you realize, no, you really didn't have that. That one ingredient that you needed and you don't have it, or the person's name you're coming forward to see. And I had this experience, I think, today. Some of you, you might have remembered my name, and I'm looking at you thinking, I know that face, but I cannot remember that name. In fact, I looked at Elliot today in the the visitor's lunch, and I thought, brother, you were a visitor a year ago. Why are you not a member? Then I realized he was a member, and so welcome. Yeah, good evening. some of you have your own stories about not forgetting that one thing. You can relate to this. You know what that is like. So how is it that you and I do not fail to remember and do this one and only thing that God has called us in Christ Jesus? So follow me. So we think about this text and then the book that it's a part of. The Apostle Paul was probably really, arguably the greatest, one of the greatest Christians who ever lived. Obviously, it's like saying that there's no two snowflakes that are alike. Empirically, you might say it's very difficult to prove that. But the fact that he planted churches all throughout the known world in the first century is pretty good evidence, I think, to make that claim. And he clearly wrote 13 books of the New Testament that bear his authorship. Maybe he even wrote Hebrews. I would never argue with you about that. All right. But Paul had many concerns, many interests, many burdens, and he expresses those in in quite different ways. That sometimes, even within this letter, rejoice. There's a passion. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I could just see him as he's dictating this letter to his amanuensis. You could see him maybe walking back and forth and exerting that with real enthusiasm. Or even the tone as he opens the book of Galatians. And there's a sense of Paul really justifiably angry and defensive that the true gospel, 
not another gospel will continue with the Galatians. Paul, many, many concerns. Even in the end of Colossians 1, he in effect distilled his ministry to say this, of speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ, whom we preach, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we might, and here there's a singleness of purpose, present everyone mature in Christ. Paul's equation for life, I think I preached this two years ago when we looked at Philippians 1.21. It was simple. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. That equation, life equals Christ plus nothing. And so this one and only thing of progressing in our Christian pilgrimage is centered around three key words in our passage about our passage. And I want to give these to you for the outline for our text. Number one, humility. Number two, clarity. We'll see first humility in verse 12. And if you're taking notes, I do this this simple. Humility, verse 12. Clarity, verses 13 and 14. And then certainty, verses 15 and 16. So as you take the word and you look at it, I want you to be remind, remind yourself that Paul here is in prison. And really all the more amazing that a man imprisoned should make joy and rejoicing the theme and gratitude, the theme of his book. It's not surprising. He even opens the book with these verses. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Arguably, this book is infused with this gracious attitude of gratitude and joy. Yet he's in prison. And that's all the more remarkable as we consider Paul in first, in verse 12, his humility. I want you to know that Paul had a realistic view of himself. I had fun this morning with Mitch at the breakfast table with the kids, the Abao kids. I asked them this. Would you rather be a child with adult-like responsibilities or would you rather be an adult with childlike responsibilities? I think Mitch smiled for a moment. She said, I'd rather be a child with, with adult-like responsibilities. Well, Paul had this realistic view of himself. This was one, the one who said he was chief at one thing indeed, he was a chief. He was chief of all sinners. He was humble. He had this quality of humility, not a false humility on his part where he put on airs. He knew that he had not arrived. He knew that he was not God's indispensable gift to the church. So what does he tell the Philippians? Not that I have already obtained this. He was certain that he was not perfect. He was not the prototype of Christian maturity or a completed project. He says, neither had he already obtained this, and we'll get into that in a moment, what that means in the preceding verses. And he says, nor have I already been made 
perfect. I find Pastor Tim Keller's definition of humility very helpful here. This is what he says. Humility, humility is not thinking less of ourselves, but thinking of ourselves less. Let me repeat that. Humility is not thinking less of ourselves, but thinking of ourselves less. That type of humility is modeled by our Lord Jesus in Philippians 2, verses 1 through 11. And I hope that your breath might be taken away when you, with Jesus as the model of humility, as Paul says, he was the one who did not consider, he did not regard equality with God something to be grasped. But he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Paul knew that he had not yet attained all that he desired, all for which he hoped, all that ate him up, that burned within him like the embers of a bonfire, even on a chilly night, the hottest of those. The desire to know Christ in all the beauty of his person, the desire to know the dynamite-like power of his resurrection, to know by personal experience a side-by-side fellowship in Christ's in his sufferings, to know all the dimensions of his death in the same way that he would pray for the Ephesians in Ephesians 3, that they might know the breadth and the length and the height and depth and to know the love of Christ, that they might be filled with all the fullness of God. It was Paul who wanted to know all the benefits of his death and his resurrected life for us as his sheep, those who are the elect of the Father, those who, by the regenerating and renewing work of the Holy Spirit, have been brought in the kingdom. But Paul did not stop. He pressed on. And so, as an application here, we want to note that as we're thinking of this first word, humility, in connection with verse 12, that humility does not equal passivity. It does not mean sitting and doing nothing or not caring. It means doing all you can while you can for all those you can with a Christ-like servant spirit. It looks like Paul saying to the Corinthians, I will gladly spend and be spent for you. And I want to say to Trinity Baptist Church, I see this here. I see this here, I promise. When Cheryl and I left 11 months ago after spending a month with you, one of the takeaways is how you love each other, how you give yourselves to each other, and how that's a reflection of a church that's moving on, that it's a church that's focusing on the one and the only thing. Well, second, let's look at verses 13 and 14. Paul had a clear view of the Christian life, his Christian life, that was noted by humility. He knew his life was a work in progress. 
And so he says, brothers. And I want to say to our sisters in Christ, when you read brothers there at Delphoi, just as we're going to see in the next chapter, that Paul directly addresses two sisters who you might say, you might think initially the point is that they're in conflict with each other. They are. But he regards them as first-rate co-laborers in the gospel. And so when you see brothers, I would actually suggest that you translate that in your mind, brothers and sisters. He's writing to the gathered church, men and women, young and old. And he has clarity. He's accurately assessed his life. He says, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. He had this clarity about the one thing, but one thing I do. In the Greek, it's simply, but one. That's what you read. To translate it literally, it would say, but one, forgetting what is behind and straining forward to what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize. And I want you to understand that there are two participles here, forgetting and straining. And then th those give shape to what Paul is intending to do his one thing, but one. And that is pressing on. That's what Paul is saying He's doing, he's pressing on, and that pressing on is shaped and joined to these two words, forgetting what is behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. And you might call it a windshield mentality to life, not a rear view mirror way of thinking, but this forward focus to life. And you might ask, what was Paul aiming to forget? If you think about this, there are all types of things that we, we'd like to forget. Some of you clean out your inboxes really well. I do that poorly. I always keep lots of emails. Like Cheryl says, she said, honey, why don't you delete those? And I'm thinking, I might need it one day, okay? Maybe you think like that, okay? It's like the way you hoard stuff. And some of you are like, the way I'm going to forget it is to delete it. So you ask, what was Paul aiming to forget? So what does the context suggest? So let me give that what I think makes the most sense in the context of Philippians 3 in this letter. Paul was aiming to forget all those things in which he previously placed his confidence, the things he called his gain or his profit, the things that Paul called his gain or his profit. So let me give you, let me illustrate this. If you are a U.S. citizen and you have assets, wealth in the stock market, and you didn't move it around from January 1 to sometime in November, guess what happened to your stocks? They went down by about 20%. If you had a dollar on January 1, 2022, it became 80 cents 300 days later on average. All right. And so if you placed your confidence in your assets, that was a poor place 
to place your confidence. And so Paul is saying the things that previously he regarded as assets, as gain or profit, he's had a radical reorienting, a radical reaccounting of what was an asset, and now he understands, in fact, is worthless. That's why he so strongly warned the Philippians about the circumcisers there in verse 2. I don't know about you, but if you call something a dog, it's greatly, greatly devaluing it. Look out for the dogs, he says, verse 2. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. In fact, they placed a confidence, these circumcisers, in the flesh on account of this act of circumcision, an act that could never save, because Paul understood as one who wrote in 121 of this book, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain, that life alone is found in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so children, if you're listening, kids, let me just have your eyes for a minute. First, I want to say you're doing great to be here after three o'clock. You're doing awesome. You want to be children of one thing. And that one thing is to know and love the God who made you, the God who rules this world by his kind and wise hand, and by the God who's made a plan to rescue each of us from the sin that would condemn us, that would send us to hell, the sin that is the tragedy of the world from the garden when the serpent deceived Eve. And the first man fell or committed treason, really, rebellion against his creator. This is this one thing. And so when you read the catechism even about what's the chief end of man, your chief end, God made you. God made you to not only glorify him, but to enjoy him as long as you have breath. And so Paul understood that the one and only thing truly needed was what was promised in the new covenant, Ezekiel 36, that God would take out the stony hearts of all his elect, even those that had raised their fist in rebellion at him. And he would take that heart out as the master cardiac surgeon and put in their breasts this living, beating, pulsating heart that breathes out, God, I want to know you. I want to get through all the riffraff and all the clutter of life because I know that you designed me and made me and what glorifies you most is as John Piper says when we're most satisfied in him. It's the way of faith. The circumcision of the heart is through the instrument of faith. That new covenant in Ezekiel 36, God says, I'll give you a new heart and a new spirit I'll put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Young person, will you ever be a Christian? You must go through heart surgery, but God can do it. And so Paul aimed to forget 
As we're thinking of clarity, he aimed to forget every gram, every particle, think about this, of confidence he had ever had in the flesh. Everything that previously he would boast about, that he'd kind of stand up and he'd feel proud about. He'd stick out his chest and was the basis for his boasting. He loathed it now. He gives it to us in verses 4 through 8. He says, I was circumcised on the eighth day. I was of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church. He boasted about that. And then later, that was his basis for such great shame that he had persecuted the church of God. That's why he'd say, I'm the least of all the apostles, and I'm the chief of sinners. I want you to take a breath now. Let me read this about Paul. Let me read his own end-of-life accounting in Philippians 3.7. But whatever gain I had, B.C., before Christ, I counted as loss for the sake of of Christ. Those gains were gone, now counted as trash, as worthless refuge, refuse, as equal to human excrement. Cover your eyes, hold your nose, don't look. Don't step in it. That's how he felt about it. In the swagger that Paul could boast, graceless and faithless as it was, it was gone evacuated, evaporated. Everything that gave him confidence prior to the road to Damascus, it was swept away by the beauty and the treasure of Christ alone in whom Paul knew was his hope of glory. All in which he had previously placed his confidence, he now knew had no reward. No payoff. All now was God's grace through the gift of faith. And so this is the one thing Paul did. Forgetting what was in his past and straining forward to what lay ahead, pressing on to who in what truly mattered in life, his Savior, Christ Jesus. One thing in three dimensions. And Paul is making the Christian life more simple for us right here. And I think this is helpful if you think about this. We're not saying the Christian life, and neither is Paul saying that the Christian life is easy. But in its prescription, it's simple. Forgetting what lies behind, pressing forward to what lies ahead, as those of us who may say with Paul, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain, we press on for the mark of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Reject, Paul says, reject any and all confidence in your identity that is not rooted In the cross of King Jesus, remove, Paul says, the clutter, 
that distracts you from the mission to which God calls every Christian. Look forward, no strain forward, like a strainer running full speed through the tape at the end of his course. Run, run hard, run with purpose, run with your spiritual tank filled with God's word, and by all means, stop running alone. Beware the danger, and I wanted to use this as an application. Beware the danger of the barrenness of an alone, unaccounted for life. Beware the danger of thinking that you're converted and that you are in the race of the Christian life when you have no fruit of spiritual life. Pastor Marungi this morning in Sunday school was opening up Galatians 5 in the fruit of the Spirit. And together we were thinking briefly about that as one of the, the inward marks of a work of the Spirit, and that is that our lives manifest the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace. Patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And Paul says with an exclamation point, against such things, there is no law. Do you love? Is your life marked by love? We read elsewhere that. Love is the fulfilling of the law. And I don't mean hatred. I mean, do you love? Do you cultivate an affection for others that's committed to doing your absolute best to help their lives flourish? Are you seeking the best, the highest good of your brother's and sisters, do you love? Pastor Morongi took us even through 1 John. I appreciated that this morning significantly as a test of whether we have been born again of the Spirit. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3, 13, verse 5, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. It's actually very encouraging, he says. And for some of you that are wondering, are you a Christian? So here's Paul. Examine yourselves to see if you're in the faith. And then he says, or do you not realize this about yourself, that Jesus Christ is in you unless indeed you fail to meet the test? Humility. Clarity. Let's look finally at verses 15 and 16 in this single word of certainty. The gospel had shaped Profoundly, Paul's view on Christian maturity, you see that in verses 7 through 14. And moreover, he expressed this certainty about God's commitment to produce that in every Christian. And he says, let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. And I think Paul was referring here to his way of thinking that genuine Christian maturity, which was the cultivated habit of forgetting what lies behind, straining forward to what lies ahead, 
And that mirrored Paul's ambition to know the Son of God deeply. Not simply to know about, like the way you can recite the data of a country like Kenya. You see, I knew a little about Kenya before I came to Kenya the first time in November of 2017. But what's sweet is now I'm getting to know some Kenyans. You see the difference? to know via personal experience and relationship. And so Paul wanted to know the Son of God deeply, to know by his own experience all the power of the Son's resurrection, to relate to and to embrace the fellowship of Christ's sufferings so that if by any way possible, he says, he might become like the Son of God in his death. You see this, brothers and sisters, this Paul was certain was that God was committed to create in the hearts of his people. That is to become like the Lord Jesus in his death. This Paul was certain God would reveal to the Philippians because Paul knew from verse chapter one, verse six, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. This Paul was certain was at the heart of Paul's of God's plan of redemption in that golden chain in Romans 8. I don't know if Pastor Morungi is there yet at the end of chapter 8. Are you there yet? Almost, sort of, close. It doesn't, it doesn't void the word, so here we go. When Paul says, for those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son, that he might be firstborn among many brothers. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. Brothers, sisters, When you feel like a fish swimming upstream and it seems that when you think of your Christian life, it's all struggle and anguish and failure. Remember this, your holiness, my holiness, our Christ-like is not incidental to God's plan, but it is central. And he is committed to making us to reflect his son. You're not simply a work in progress. You're a guaranteed work to completion. But still, there's a warning to the Philippians, and it's to us. He says, don't look back. Don't fall back and don't let up. Only let us hold true to what we've attained. So I want to ask you a question. Does your life show a pattern of progress in the faith. In 350 days, it will be December 31st, 2023. How will you have grown and matured in fruitfulness over the next 11 and a half months? Ask yourself, are you growing in the faith? Or are you spotty, inconsistent, unreliable? Listen, discouraged Christian, I want to speak to you just for a minute. Cheer up. 
martyr. The Christian death, yes, in one, the Christian life, in one sense, is a death sentence in that the Lord Jesus says, take up your cross daily and follow me. But really, it's a life sentence. It was Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, that said in John 10, I came that my sheep might have life and have it abundantly. And we're not just talking about fire insurance to keep us from hell, but a life now, a rich life, not necessarily easy, but one as we're safe in the arms of our shepherd. So encourage yourself in the powerful, redeeming grace of God. God has not predestined you to a holiness, a transformation to Christ-like, Christ-likeness that he will not produce in you for the sake of his great name. You're feeling weak. A bruised reed. A bruised reed he will not break. A dimly burning wick surely he will not snuff out. But his plan is to produce that holiness in you through the provision of the means of grace. How's he going to do that? Progressively, inch by inch. Good growth takes time, but also takes effort. You know, in the U.S., we have a a tree called a walnut tree. I don't know if you have walnuts in Kenya, but pretty well, if you want walnuts, From a walnut tree, you've got to plant that thing now and take real good care of it. I think like five to seven years before you'll see the first walnut. But you cannot do this in your own strength. You need the power. You need the truth of God's word. You need the light of the gospel in the Lord Jesus. You need the sanctifying and persevering power of his spirit. Never forget that your Your persevering is God's preservation of you. He's holding you. He will hold you fast. And so the means of grace, the word, prayer, both private and corporate with the people of God, the fellowship of his people, the Lord's day, the sacraments. Do you feel like a failure with prayer and with the word? In Proverbs, it says the righteous man falls seven times and he gets up. Don't forget Lamentations 3, 22 and 23. The steadfast love of the Lord, what? It never ceases. His mercies are new every morning. You know, you'll have new mercies tomorrow on January 16th that weren't given to you. This day. So, Christian, he's given all things for your benefit and growth and grace. Peter says, We have everything we need for godliness. Gather church, fellow saints, let's take advantage of all that he's designed to make us grow up into him who is the head, to press on toward the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Another application I want to give you here. Be unabashed in telling others that you see God at work in them. You see them growing in grace. You see them growing in love and faith, in humility, 
and their ability to serve meaningfully, you see that they're bearing fruit and that you believe more than ever that they're abiding in the Lord Jesus. You never subtract. You never empty yourself when you pour out on others that type of exhortation and and encouragement. You become more full. I think sometimes we think that coming alongside others in noting their gifts and their graces is somehow subtractive. No. The paradox, the paradox of encouragement within the body is that we bless others, we encourage others and know what God is doing in them. We actually become more full, not less. So Paul He says, do not regress, press forward. Only let us hold true to what we've attained. Take hold of Christ Jesus, my friends, for how he took hold of you. Listen to Chris Ostom as he makes this myopic, this single-eyed pursuit of the competing athlete come alive for us. He says, he that runs looks not at the spectators, but at the prize. Whether they be rich or poor, doesn't matter. If one mocks them, applauds them, insults them, throws stones at them, if one plunders their house, if they see their children or wife or anything whatsoever, the runner is not turned aside, but is concerned only with his running and winning the prize. He that runneth, Chrysostom says, stoppeth nowhere. Since if he be a little remiss, all is lost. He that runneth relaxeth in no respect before the end, but then most of all stretcheth over the course. Let me close. Humility. Clarity. Certainty. I ask you today, what is your one and only thing. If you only had two words on your gravestone, would you be satisfied if they said, Christ's alone? Christ's alone. Is your one and only thing the same as Paul's? As that old saved by grace apostle of the cross, I pray this, I pray it's so. There's so much that you and I may forget. In fact, I think as I'm aging, I'm losing my height, my mind, my hair, my sight, and my memory. Other than that, I'm doing great. Thanks. But there's one thing, one overarching reality that you and I must never forget. And he'll help you. He'll help you with this sanctified remembrance of the one thing. Because he's promised in the new covenant. He's promised that he is our God and we're his people. Moms, could you ever forget that baby at your breast? Then the Lord our God, Adonai, he says that I can never forget you. And so he will help you to remember And never forget to remember all you need to remember. And especially that anything and everything that is not found 
in the cross of Christ will not secure your life now or in eternity. He helps us. He helps us in our weakness. And he will help you. May God make this true in every life, in every soul, in every boy, in every girl, in every man and every woman here to the praise of his name. Amen.